Hello everyone, this is Andre, the co-founder of Twins Tours and Travel in Jerusalem in Israel, born into a Christian Maronite family, and I'm a licensed tour guide and an ordained minister of the gospel. I have been leading numerous groups throughout the Holy Land for almost 20 years. Also, I'm an author of several books, and you can find them in Amazon. And one of the first books I wrote called One Friday in Jerusalem speaks about my life story. So join me for a journey of 10 days to understand the heart and the mind of Jesus and to understand the Bible in a deeper way with more details through the Middle Eastern perspective. Please share this podcast with your friends and families and churches and connect with me if you have any questions. Hello, welcome back to day number five. We are driving from Peter Primacy Church to Capernaum and all the group is in the bus. It is like 15 minutes drive and I will not do any teaching. I will not hold the microphone, but I let all the group relax and chat with each others. I will be silent all the way arriving to Capernaum because we are staying around one hour in this site and they will receive uh, so much teachings and information and it's really good to give the group a break or rest and not feel bombarded with information and let them relax and share to each others because they don't know what the next is expecting to what they're gonna receive next there will be a lot of deep teachings so the bus just arrived to Capernaum parking lot I informed the group this is a very important Franciscan site we have to follow the rules the Franciscan rules, the Catholic Church, and we have to respect it. They are very strict, especially about modest dress, holy dress. So for the ones who have short sleeves or shorts like uh, trousers, bring the shawl with you to cover. We have to be quiet and not make any loud noises or laugh out loud. We need to respect the place. And also I remind the group to bring with them their Bibles, sunglasses, water is very important and bring also your smiles with you. I know some of the members are tired, but it's fine. This is a very important place, Capernaum, the hometown of Jesus that we will explore together. So the group will descend from the bus. It is like another five minutes walk from the bus parking lot all the way to the site and this is a very busy place so the parking lot is far for larger buses it's so much needed because there's so many buses coming to park here but in the past we used to park near the church but only many buses are allowed today to park nearby the church because of space issues and before arriving to the main entrance at the site i advise the participants to take a group picture at the entrance because there is a sign and on the sign there is written these words Capernaum the hometown of Jesus this will be a good memory for the group after I take the picture their picture I tell them to take selfies everyone to take a selfie I will walk very quickly to the tickets office and I pay the entrance fees and I ask from the group to follow me after they took their pictures because this is a very big site and I will tell the group I will not be able to give you free time because there are a lot of things to see and learn and I do not want them to miss anything.
I always like to share the plan in advance to remind the group what to expect. And I will tell them, remember, the theme of the day is still the power of the kingdom of heaven. And I told them that today in Capernaum, I'll expand more about it. And I'll tell them they, what we're going to do next. We're going to go first to the synagogue and we're going to read from scripture what happened there. And after finishing teaching in the synagogue, I will show you the house of Peter and explain about it. And then we're going to go back again to the synagogue. There is a reason why I'm doing that, to walk them back from the synagogue to the house and back to the synagogue. Because I want to bring the scripture life to them and I want them to do what Jesus had done here. And then I want to explain for them an important teaching. It will be little bit long but we will do it under the sycamore trees at the seats after being in the synagogue and the final thing i will show them some three important archaeological findings and then after that we're going to head the bus so this is the big plan for the group i also give them the option if they are tired from too much information from me or they can't absorb anymore feel free to go around you do not need to follow me, and I am surprised. Like, after I say this, no one leaves. Everyone is serious. Everyone is following me. And that means that they are really interested and want to learn more and not to miss any information. And it's encouraging to me, but I like to give them this option for them to be free and not that I'm holding them on. So I'm walking with the group and teaching at the same time. Everyone have a headset so everyone can hear me. And I'm walking from the ticket office all the way directly to the synagogue. And I will start sharing with the group and say Capernaum is not the original name. It's the Western name, Capernaum. In Hebrew, it's Kfar Nachum. Kfar means a village. Nachum in Hebrew means comfort lanuach the word in hebrew to have comfort the village of comfort and rest this is where jesus found in his like soul to be resting and having comfort in this town and capernaum is the most important city in the north and western side of the lake because it's a border city and whenever it's a border city it gets crowded and remember we spoke about and learned about the three categories of uh, cities around the lake and three Herods and remember we said Herod Philippi rules the Golan Heights and Herod Antipas rules the area of the Sea of Galilee so Capernaum is between Herod Philippi territories and Herod Antipas territories so it's a border city and if it's a border city it will be highly populated and when it's highly populated this is the best place where jesus can go and find comfort living there and to reach more people remember we said ceremony on the mount is not far from here we started this morning we said it's about joy blessed is about joy comfort rest being content remember we learned about it so Jesus was really content being in Kfarnachon because he's bringing the light among the darkness. And you have to understand Kfarnachon was a fishing village. 
And this village was established during the time of the Hasmonean dynasty. You know them by the Maccabees. Around 100 BCE, by John Hyrcanus, he founded so many Jewish villages in Galilee, like Chorazin, Bethsaida, Nazareth, Cana, and Farnahum is located on the northern western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it's in the Jewish area. So it was founded by the Hasmoneans. And Farnahum, in the time of Jesus, was around the population, scholars say, between 1,500 to 2,000 people. And this is considered a large town. Kfar in Hebrew means bigger than a town. And Kfar can be more than 1,000 people. But when you hear in the Bible the word bite, it's smaller than a Kfar, smaller than a village. Bite means a house. Like Beit Lechem in Hebrew, Bethlehem, the house of bread. Like Beit Anya, which is known by in English by Bethany. Bait is house, Anya is the poor. So Bait in Hebrew means a house. So whenever you read in scripture, it's a Bait. Bait Saida, for example, it's less inhabitants. A Bait can be varies from 200 to 400, at most 500 people. But when you hear the word Kfar, Kfar Nachum, so it's above 1,000. And archaeological excavations have revealed two ancient synagogue built on top of each others this is where we're heading now and if you look to the right side you will see the house of peter from far which we will visit and you look to the left side we're approaching the synagogue and we are going through five steps going inside the synagogue but before that i want to pay your attention look to the left you're going to see the original floor of the first century synagogue. You're going to see the stones in basalt dark color. So this is the original synagogue, the first synagogue that was built in the time of Jesus. The synagogue on top of it with the white limestone is believed to be in the from the Byzantine period. We are standing right now inside the synagogue. And always I'll like to start the teaching with asking questions because it become relational and i want to involve the group and because there is a gap between me and them in our mindset they are in the western mindset i'm in the middle eastern mindset so i want to breach this gap and make it less and less and less and how you can do that by asking questions a good teacher involve a relationship to ask questions so i will ask my group what is the most important thing in a jewish town it's an easy question. They will answer me a synagogue. I will answer them back. Exactly correct. So, a synagogue in Hebrew means Bait Knesset. Bait means a house, as we learned. Knesset, from the Hebrew word Kenes, means gathering. So, a synagogue means the house of gathering in Hebrew. In Greek, synagogos also means the house of gathering. And as we learned, Bait Knesset, the house of gathering where people gather, what to do? Not only to pray, not only to worship, the core is to read Torah, to read scripture. That is the importance of the synagogue. 
So this synagogue we are standing in, the white limestone you see all around you, and it's big and huge, was discovered in 1838 and excavated by two German archaeologists, Henrich Kohel and Karl Watzinger. And they were, they were researching all the ancient synagogues in Galilee. And they got a conclusion that it was built in the 4th or 5th century. So all the ruins that we are standing in and you see around is built on top of the ruins of a 1st century synagogue. And how we can differentiate between the two, the 1st century or the 5th century? The 1st century synagogue had dark basalt stones. So anywhere you see dark stones, basalt, volcanic stones, it's from the time of Jesus. Anytime you see white limestone or chalk limestone, it's later period, Byzantine period. This is a very large synagogue. And a large synagogue means there is a large size of town, which means a large size of population. So the synagogue reflects the size of the population of any city. And I want you to pay attention. Look all the way at the top south corner side where I am pointing to. You will notice a long iron beam, modern one. And above it, you will notice a door with a frame, the base of a door with a frame. This means this synagogue had two floors, so it was huge. And to the left of the door frame, you will see a base of a pillar supporting the second floor and another pillar. So this means it's a huge synagogue with two floors high. Allow me to share with you what happened in this synagogue. Jesus himself preached many times in the synagogue of Capernaum. But be careful, not in what we see here, the limestone, but of the original basalt dark stone synagogue. Is it clear? The dark stone synagogue was destroyed. We don't know why. Maybe an earthquake. Scholars do not know exactly why. So it has been rebuilt. So when Jesus was here, he preached in this synagogue, but in the original one from the first century. What you see around you is reconstructed later. And let me set for you the stage for the background of the teaching around. And we know that Capernaum is the hometown of Jesus. But let us get into more details. What was the first hometown of Jesus? Nazareth, yes. Where he had his childhood, which we learn all about. We just came from, we stayed in Nazareth for two days, and we learned about the childhood of Jesus. Where is the second hometown of Jesus? Capernaum, yes. We will learn a lot about it. He loved to be here in Capernaum. And I asked the group, what is the third hometown of Jesus? It's very hard for them to answer. I will hint for them Jerusalem. I tell them where in Jerusalem? Bethany. Yes, Jesus loved to stay at the house of Mary and Martha whenever he went up to Jerusalem. And, and later, we're going to go, after staying two nights in Galilee, we are going to go up to Jerusalem. But let's get back to the point. This is the hometown of Jesus, Kfar Nachon. He loved being here. And he loves staying here. Let us learn why and read from Scripture. Let us read from Matthew 4, 13 to 16. Jesus is the light and life. 
verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now this is very important what I'm talking. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea. You know the way of the sea? The Via Maris, the road of the sea. Every time Jesus comes from the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, from Nazareth all the way to Galilee, he goes by the way of the sea. And to the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen great light. Verse 16 is the key verse. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So we understand that this part of the world was so much under turmoil, under conflict, faced so many wars. So why did Jesus move to Capernaum, according to the prophecy from the book of Isaiah? Let us look at the prophecy. It's a long, long uh, prophecy, but it's from Isaiah chapter 8 to 12. You can read it later. I will not read all the paragraph, but I will give you the historical background. In Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, the prophet is dealing with what we could be called the Assyrian invasion or the Assyrian crisis. And you remember from verse 1 that one of the kings in Isaiah's time was King Ahaz. And in the day of Ahaz, the king and his people were worried to death because just north of their borders, the northern kingdom and Syria were joining forces and it seemed like they were planning to conquer Judah. Remember at that time, period of history, there was the northern kingdom with the corrupt Israelite kings like King Ahaz and there was the southern kingdom with the pious kings like King Hezekiah. He kept focused and worshipped the Lord. But the northern kingdom was so much rebellious. Now, and that was the beginning of the civil war, by the way, in, in Israel. Now God, through Isaiah, has something to say about all of this. God sent word to King Ahaz, telling him not to worry about this northern confederation. The exact words are Isaiah chapter 7 verse 4. Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. God said about this confederation or plan. It shall not stand, Isaiah 7, 7. So what Ahaz should have done was to believe God. But he didn't pay much attention to God. King Ahaz went on to formulate and execute his own plan of defense. A plan that eventually backfired on him. King Ahaz hired the nation of Assyria to come over and crush the Northern Confederation. He even agreed to pay them for their help. He paid them well in silver and gold from the house of the Lord. When Ahaz didn't pay attention to God and he paid attention to himself, and when he devised his own plan, he was guilty of unbelief. And for that unbelief, he was to be punished. What happened was after the Assyrian had crushed the Northern Confederation, as Ahaz, King Ahaz had paid them to do, they just kept coming south, right into Judah and Jerusalem, where Ahaz was. So because of his unbelief, the king got more than he bargained for.
Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 tell us about these things. The Assyrian crisis. Chapter 8 tell us how God used Assyria to punish both kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah in the south. At the end of chapter 8, there is a picture of the gloom and darkness there would be as the Assyrian came through with their devastating military force. And the last verse of chapter 8 shows the people looking around and seeing trouble and darkness and the gloom of anguish. Look what in Isaiah chapter 9, what Isaiah is speaking to the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, before the Babylonian exile. Israel and Syria are pressuring Judah to form a coalition against Assyria. Ahaz, the king of Judah, is afraid to go against Assyria, so he sends king's ransom to Assyria asking for their help. Isaiah spoke into a situation where Judah felt powerless, and they were afraid of the rulers to their north, as their enemies only seemed to grow in strength and tighten their grasp. They didn't know if God was for them or against them, or if he had simply abandoned them. They were so confused. And as chapter 9 opens, the prophet is saying, look what Isaiah is saying and declaring, this gloom will not last forever. The picture of total gloom, which closed the preceding chapter, gives way to a picture of a brilliant light. Things would be bad in the aftermath of this Assyrian invasion but they wouldn't be bad forever. There was still reasons for hope as to the future. God's plans would be carried out. A time would come, Isaiah says, when darkness would be dispelled by light, gloom would be replaced by darkness, and God would have a nation of people ruled by a perfect king. And look what it says more. Verse 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So this is a prophecy that a king will come and bring light among the darkness. Look in verse 2, what is written. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. So this is what the situation Isaiah is talking about. God promises that light will dawn where the darkness is greatest. You will feed them like people being fed at the harvest. And this is, makes sense to why Capernaum was a place of darkness. There were so many battles there. It was in the region that was constantly being run by foreign powers. It was the place most subject to fear and invasion. It had been invaded so many times that it became known as the Galilee of the Gentiles, or another name, the Galilee of all nations. So this is why Jesus, the king that is mentioned in the prophecy of the book of Isaiah, came to live in Capernaum. This is why it is his hometown, because he is piercing the darkness and bringing peace and rest and comfort to the Jews living in Capernaum. So this is an ancient prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the light. This is a short background about what happened here.
but the theme, the light to the world, will continue through our teachings. So let's get to the next thing that happened in the synagogue in Capernaum in Jesus' day. Look at Luke 7, 1-9. The faith of the centurion. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Look at this. This synagogue was built by a Roman centurion which reflects the influence of the Gentiles in Galilee. Remember, I told you there was such a big influence of Gentiles. And here, it is the darkness of death that Jesus heals the man's servant from. But notice also, not only the darkness of death, the darkness of deception. The man's faith is great so that he can believe that Jesus can heal at a distance but he is deceived as to the depth of God's love for him. He thinks that Jesus would not enter his house and he is not worthy to have Jesus come to visit him because he is a Gentile. He might defy Jesus. So you see the darkness of the Gentile mindsets. But this centurion went above his culture and he believed in Jesus. And here is Jesus piercing darkness and bringing healing, bringing the light to the Gentiles. So the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in what happened with the centurion son. And look what else happened in the synagogue in Capernaum. Another story. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. Jesus drives out an impure spirit. Verse 21. They went to Kfarnachum. And when the Shabbat came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. Verse 24. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. 
come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He, give, he even gives order to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So this is the first miracle that happened. A demon is cast out. And where does this happen? Right here in a synagogue. How does this fulfill the prophecy from Isaiah? As you know, demons are a force of darkness. But there's more to it than this. Where is the man with the demon? In the synagogue. Is he there to meet Jesus? No. What is a man with a demon doing in a synagogue? That's how great the darkness was that the people did not even know, in many cases, the hold that Satan had on their lives. Was this man foaming at the mouth or screaming out at the top of his lungs? No. Is he asking for help or others asking that Jesus cast out the demon from him? No. He is hidden. Let me go another level. Likewise, this is like very deep. Might not all of you agree with me, but this is my personal experience too. There are many people in church, even every Sunday, who are dominantly influenced. And no one is aware about them, including themselves. They don't know. They are deceived. The darkness is so deceptive. And I have so many personal, real stories I can share with you with demons. But when the light comes, when the anointing comes on you, the demons get exposed. I have stories from people attend church and been members in churches and had seven demons in them. And when the anointing come, they get exposed and the spirit of the Lord and the kingdom of heaven release them. That's been my life story, my vocation. I can tell you more about it, but it's not the subject here. But the point I want to make, where Jesus went with the anointing, and the light pierced into darkness and set people free. So that was the first story and miracle happened in the synagogue of Kfarnahum. Let us continue teaching. Where did Jesus stay in Kfarnahum? Look what is written in Mark chapter 1, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. So, let's do what they did. Let's walk over together to the house of Simon and Peter. This is what Jesus has done. Let's walk the path. Now, all the group is following me to the house of Peter. It's not like what you think in your mind is the house. In Greek, it's called insula. I'm explaining why I'm talking and I'm walking. Okay, I'm talking and walking all the way to the house. It's not far. It's like two minutes walk. So insula means a compound. So the house in your mindset as Westerners is a big, large house. No, it's a compound of rooms and courtyard together 
it's like the houses is blocks with streets running between them different blocks and generally there are 40 member family members extended family members lives inside this insula inside these courtyards and blocks so these large courtyards surrounded by rooms the houses were constructed of local basalt stones the dark stones like we see and if you look to the left where we're passing you see the basements of the houses all in basalt dark stones so this means they are from the first century and each like insula had only one entrance from the main street there were so many insulas in Kfarnahum, so many of them and inside each insula there is something called in greek kataluma kataluma literally means a guest room which is the biggest room inside the insula in the compound and this kataluma is usually kept for the guests and there's abundance of supply of food and when the bible says there is no room in the inn it's a wrong translation should be there is no place in the kataluma which means there is no place in the guest room and whenever a guest is coming it's not like today they send an email or do a reservation because many people are walking from one village to another village they simply just knock on the door remember i said there's only one entrance in the insula in the compound they will knock on the door they keep knocking on the door even at midnight and who is always awake and alert the elderly in the insula usually there's one person who is the most old the most wise he does not sleep much he's always alert so he will open the door remember jesus saying i'm knocking at the door of your house or at the door of your heart i'm gonna keep knocking until someone opens and i'm gonna enter inside the depth room in your heart the kataluma the guest room where you keep everything i'm gonna have food with you so this is what happens the elderly will open the house open the room and enter the stranger to the kataluma to the guest room where is food and keep him there and then he will eat and he can leave later anytime and people gather also to pray in a guest room in a kataluma and remember the last supper took place in jerusalem it was a kataluma it's a guest room so it's the most used room in the compound and what we see here now we're approaching peter's house what we see here is the earliest guest room in the world the earliest house church in the world dominus ecclesia from here it's all started house churches and when we speak about a church you have to understand and be careful it's not the building which Jesus is talking about he's talking about the people the guest room this is where early Jewish believers gather this means this is the earliest church in the world so the church is the community of believers gathering together look what Jesus said for where two or three gathered in my name there I am with them wherever you read in the book of acts about a church it's a mistranslation the word the word ecclesia 
does not mean, as I said, the church building. It means the body of believers. Maybe 70 members, 70 Jewish believers in the first century in the guest room is what we call today a mega church. So the numbers are much more smaller than what you think in your mind. So whenever you read about the book of Acts, a church is not more than 70 members. And you see the courtyards paved with basalt and staircases were built along their walls, which give access to the second story of the roof, as you see from here. And many courtyards and the houses contain numerous grinding stones made of basalt. And there are many like insulas in Capernaum. So people live in communities, like a tribal way of thinking, tribal way of life. Imagine you live with your mother-in-law, father-in-law, your cousins, with the extended family. And we know this is the house of Peter. And Jesus lived in the house of Peter in the insula. So in the insula, there's so many different houses, guest rooms. So Jesus lived here in this home in the house of Peter so how do we know this is the place we are talking about how do we know in the Bible this is the house it's proven by archaeologists let me share more with you we found plasters walls unlike other rooms in the area its walls were plastered It's the only house with a plaster guest room on the western side of Capernaum which means it's an important room if it's plastered. Which means people gathered to pray there. It was the most used room, the cataluma, the guest room. From the pottery, at the same time, there was a shift in the use to which the rooms was put. Prior in the mid-first century, the broken pottery found in the floor revealed normal family use. Thereafter, only storage jars and lamps were found, the kind that would be in use for public gathering. In this Cataluma, in this guest room, we found the highest number of oil lamps in all over any room in Capernaum. Which means, again, this is the most used room in the community. Also, archaeologists found graffiti. A great number of graffiti scratched in the plaster walls. Some of which mentions Jesus as Lord and Christ. As well as the name Peter is written in Hebrew and in Aramaic. And this is highly unusual, like in the first century, to find writings on plaster. And by the fourth century, this room was the centerpiece of house church that was visited by a very important historian. Her name is Ejurian. Ejuria. She came here in the fourth century. And she's a Christian pilgrim who toured the Holy Land and wrote about it. She tells us that in Kfarnachum, the house of the prince apostles has been made into a church with its original walls still standing. So we have an evidence from the 4th century from a historian speaking about the location of the house church. By the 6th century, a Christian pilgrim writes and tells us that the house church has been extended to a basilica which is the octagonal church. What you see now, the octagonal shape, is the church in the 6th century. Archaeologists have found all of this right here. There are 11 layers of archaeology. So, we are confident that this is the house of Peter. 
So we are at the house. Let us see what happens here. Let me read for you from scripture from Mark chapter 1 verses 29 to 34. Jesus heals many. Verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. Verse 31. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he, told, he would not let the demons be because they knew who he was. You see, again, the light is overcoming the darkness, the power of the anointing on Jesus as the Son of God is prevailing over the darkness of the Gentiles in Galilee. Look what's written in Mark 1.35. Jesus prays in a solitary place. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, again, the house, okay, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. What house he left? This house, the house of Peter. Notice that the light of the world, Jesus the light of the world got up early to pray while it was dark so he could bring light into the darkness and the prophecy of Isaiah which we read about in chapter 9 is being fulfilled in Jesus look what is written in Mark chapter 2 1 to 12 Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. Verse 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. You see? He had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them verse 4 since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowds they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on when Jesus saw their faith he said to the paralyzed man son your sins are forgiven verse 6 now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in the spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to them, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. 
A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Literally in Greek, it says that he is in the house. Which home he came back? The same house, the house of Peter. Probably this one again, the house of Peter, which means that the following story where people dig out the roof and let down the paralyzed happened right here in the house. Are you aware in a Jewish culture, you're not allowed to come to the house from the roof? It is not appropriate. It is not honoring or respecting the owner of the house. The normal culture at that time, until today in the Jewish culture, the right thing to do is to enter from the door, respecting the owner of the house. And remember we mentioned there is only one entrance to the compound? And probably it was so crowded because people were there. And, and the roofs were like a network of branches covered with straw and earth. Could be used as like, uh, we know first century roofs in Galilee were usually flat, consisting of timber beans, usually sycamore or cypress, set into the walls like from two to two meters and a half over the floor, supporting branches of reeds, which retain thick layers of earth and plaster. And because there was no place to enter from the main entrance, from the main door, they did not care about the culture. They didn't care to do what is the appropriate thing. If you're stuck in your culture, it's not good. You need to go above the culture. So these men went above the culture. This is what the paralytic, paralytic man was lowered from the roof. And Jesus saw the people faith carrying the paralyzed man. And look what he said in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. So they went out of the norm. They went out of the box. They went out of the culture. Only to see Jesus, to see the light. And notice what Jesus said. Your sins are forgiven. But the teachers of the law did not like that. They objected him. What does this have to do with darkness and light? This man was brought from the world, from the darkness, from the sin in his life, to the house, to the church, to the light. The house, the home is the light where Jesus was. So his life changed from darkness to light. From a sinful man, his sins has been forgiven to walk in the light. Jesus' light brings life and healing, and he is the light of the world that forgives sins. But the darkness hates the light and is confused by it, so much so that the teachers of the law accuses Jesus of blasphemy. I'm going to share with you another story from Scripture. Jesus calls Levi and eats with sinners. Let's read from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Aliphaz, sitting at the tax collector booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. 
for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And look in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax collector booth. He saw a person in the darkness, a tax collector. Probably Matthew. He's from Capernaum. We don't know exactly where is his house, where the Bible says, but he says the house. But in the area, in one of the insulates or one of the compounds. And what did Jesus do? He went and ate dinner with him and other tax collectors. Where did he have the dinner? In his house. Where in his house? In the guest room, as we said, in the Cataluma in Greek, where people eat and sleep even. He humbled himself and went pierced the darkness to bring the light even to unimportant people. Upside down kingdom of heaven. And look how do the Pharisees respond to this? They don't like it at all. What does this have to do with the darkness and light again? The light is reaching tax collectors like Matthew. But the Pharisees can't see it because they are deceived in the dark. Religion is dark. Religiousity is darkness. I'm glad that Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a movement. To be religious, religiousity is bad, is dark. And there's so much religiousity in this part of the world. And Jesus preached every Saturday every Shabbat in the synagogue, and he read scripture, and he walked from the house, we see here, back to the synagogue. Allow me to stretch you a little bit. This is like my imagination, my writer, author way of thinking. And I want you to feel and experience the distance Jesus walked. And you see the synagogue is not far from here, located some like 30 meters south of the house of Peter where we are standing, like it's only like two minutes walk. What do you think? How much time do you think it took Jesus to walk from the house to the synagogue as we're reading in scripture? You'll be shocked from my answer. Probably like minimum, minimum 20 minutes or even more. Why do you think it took him a lot of time? Because he was so much popular, the light was walking. And so many people loved to be around him. And so many people wanted to touch him. They wanted to be in his presence, the presence of the light. So I will challenge the group and tell them, let us walk where Jesus walked. And I want you to imagine he is walking with us to the synagogue. I want the group not only to experience this setting, what's written in scripture, but also to feel 
with their like senses and with their emotions because this is the area where Jesus walked these are stones the path where he took and we know that scholars from the house to the synagogue and we are in Capernaum in the original site so it's so much powerful and so much alive when I say these words to them people can feel his presence and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the anointing among us and the light is so real so I invite the group to walk together back again to the synagogue and I will continue teaching there and I will walk in complete silence and people can live the moment all the group is inside the synagogue and I will read for them from John 6 35 to 40 what did Jesus mean when he said I am the bread of life this is very important look what it says in verse 35 then Jesus declared I am the bread of life whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty but as I told you you have seen me and still you do not believe all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and will raise them up at the last day. The key verse, I am the bread of life. You know, this is in 35. I am the bread of life. This is one of the seven I am statements of Jesus. Jesus used the same phrase I am in seven declarations about himself. And in all seven, he combines I am with tremendous metaphors, which expresses his relationship towards the world. And all appears also in the book of John. Look what's written in John 6.35 again. It says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Let us learn about this verse. What is the bread the bread is considered to be a staple food. It's a basic dietary item in the Middle East. It is so big and so much important in the Jewish culture. The bread should be present in every meal. A person can survive a long time on only bread and water. Bread is such a basic food item that it becomes synonymous for food in general. In this part of the world, you should have bread in breakfast, bread in lunch, bread during dinner. It's a necessity. Even in the church today, you use the word breaking bread together to indicate the sharing of a meal with someone. Also, bread is important in the Jewish Passover meal. The Jews were to eat unleavened bread during the Passover feast and then for seven days following as a celebration of the exodus from Egypt. And also, finally, when the Jews were wandering in the desert for 40 years, God rained down bread from heaven to sustain the nation. Exodus 16, 4. 
Why I'm saying that? To give you an introduction about the bread. Also, this plays into the scene being described in John chapter 6 when Jesus used the term bread of life. He was trying to get away from the crowds to no avail. He had crossed the Sea of Galilee and the crowd followed him. After some time, Jesus inquires of Philip how they're going to feed the crowds. Philip answered, displays his little faith when he says they don't have enough money to give each of them the smallest morsel of food. You know, Jesus was looking deeper. He said, I am the bread of life. I'm with you. Never get hungry. But they didn't see it. Finally, Andrew brings to Jesus a boy who have five small loaves of bread and two fish. With that amount, Jesus miraculously fed the throng with lots of food to spare. Afterward, Jesus and his disciples cross back to the other side of Galilee. When the crowd sees that Jesus has left, they followed him again. Jesus takes this moment to teach them a lesson. He accuses the crowd of ignoring his miraculous signs and only following him for the free meals. Look what it says in John 6:27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father had set his seal. In other words, they were so fascinated with the food, they were missing out on the fact that their Messiah had come. And in modern days today, modern language, so many people go to church just for food. And what's happening today, also coronavirus. Everyone is needing food. You see how much food is important and bread is important. There are so many like families just have no food. So it's a necessity. It's important. And this is how is the importance of Jesus in our lives. He, sh he is our food. And look what happens next. So the Jews ask Jesus for a sign that he was sent from God. As if the, the miraculous feeding and the walking across the water weren't enough for them. They always complain. They tell Jesus that God gave them manna during the desert wandering. Jesus responds by telling them that they need to ask for the true bread, the true life, the true light from heaven that gives life. When they ask Jesus for his bread, for this bread, Jesus starts them by saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Even among the coronavirus, if we focus in Jesus, we will have the eternal food. We have the light. And by the way, what Jesus said is unique. By equating himself with the bread. In other words, Jesus is saying he is essential for life. Second, life Jesus is referring to is not the physical life, by the way, in this statement. It is the eternal life. Jesus is trying to get the Jews thinking of not only the physical realm and to think in the spiritual realm. The spiritual is more important than the physical. And in these words, Jesus is making another claim to his deity. This statement is the first of the I am statement in John's gospel, as I mentioned. The phrase I am is the covenant name of God. In Hebrew, Yahuwah, Yahuwah revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14 is I am, Jehovah. 
the phrase speaks of self-sufficient existence or what theologians refers to the deity of Jesus, which is an attribute only Jesus and God possesses. And also it's a phrase where the Jews were listening would have understood in the first century. Jehovah, Yahuwah. Let me explain for you in Hebrew, what does it mean, Yahuwah? Yahuwah comes from originally the past, the present, and the future. Look what in Hebrew says. The past means Haya. Haya means the past. Hove means the present. Yehyeh in Hebrew means the future. Haya, Hove, Yehyeh, which confirms the word Yahuwah. And the past and the present and the future. This is the deity of God, his character, his identity, his name. When Jesus say, I am, which means in Hebrew, everyone knows he's God. So the Jews in the first century know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Remember every word we said have a character, every word have a meaning in Hebrew. And it's in two layers. So the Pharisees, as knowing exactly... This is why they called him. He is a blasphemy. He is declaring he is God. And notice the word come and believe. This is an invitation for those listening to place their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. This invitation to come is found throughout John's Gospel. Coming to Jesus involves making a choice to forsake the world, the darkness, and follow him, the light. By believing in Jesus means placing our faith in him, that he is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do, and that he is the only one who can. He is everything past, present, and future. And look at the words, hunger and thirst. Again, it must be noted that Jesus isn't talking about physical hunger or thirst. The key is found in another statement Jesus made back in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, Blessed are the who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember I said, don't use the word blessed, is weak English translation. Use the word joy. Joy for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When Jesus says those who come to him will never hunger and thirst, those who believe in him, he is saying he will satisfy our hunger and thirst in the spirit to be made righteous in the sight of God. It is in the supernatural, spiritual round and not only in the physical round. If there is anything the history of human religions tells us, it is that people seek to earn their way to heaven. This is such a basic human desire because God created us with eternity in mind. God created us for a relationship. So our Creator wants to have a healthy, righteous relationship with us by us having joy of the Spirit. To have eternity in our hearts. Look what's written in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. The Bible also tells us that there is nothing we can do to earn our way to heaven. Because we've all sinned. Look what's written in Romans 
23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the only thing our sin earns us is death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no one who is righteous in himself. Also Romans 3.10, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So we have a dilemma here. We have a desire that we cannot fulfill no matter what we do. And this is when Jesus comes in. He and he alone can fulfill this desire in our hearts for righteousness sake. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew so no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 When Christ died on the cross, he took the sins of mankind upon himself and made atonement for them. When we place our faith in him, our sins are imputed to Jesus, and his righteousness is imputed to us. Jesus satisfies our hunger and thirst for righteousness. He is our bread of life. So in the area of Capernaum, Jesus had done 21 healing miracles. And he pierced darkness by becoming life. And even though Jews were so stubborn, not many believed in him. And you know that they're still stubborn till today. They do not believe in him. Jesus was so much focused. He came to the lost sheep of Israel. He came for the Jews. But if a Gentile approached him, as we learned, he never said no to a Gentile. He saw their heart and he healed them also. So he lived among the Jews in Capernaum. He was the light and they did not see it. They did not believe in him. Their eyes are still closed till today. And look what Jesus in the end said in the book of Matthew Gospel. And also Luke's Gospel recorded Jesus' message. Wow to the unrepentant cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. These are all Jewish towns located around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. For they refused to repent and he cursed them. Look in the text in Matthew Gospel 11, 20 to 24. Then Jesus began to criticize openly the cities in which he had done many of his miracles, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazim! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be thrown down to Hades. For if the miracles done among you had been done in Sodom, it would have continued to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for region of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. And look, his prophecy came true. And Capernaum is destroyed completely and never rebuilt again. Till today, it's never been rebuilt. So Jesus' words came true. He is the bread of life, but was not accepted from the Jews. So, he pierced the light, pierced darkness. So, we are still in the synagogue, and I can see the people are receiving a lot of good information. 
but I want to give them a short break, so I would suggest for them to take a group picture inside the synagogue of Capernaum, and I give them like 10 minutes break to take selfies and to go around and take more pictures. And I will tell them, I will meet you outside the synagogue to the left side, and I'll be standing there waiting for you. And whenever all the group comes, I will show them the three major important archaeological findings in the history of Capernaum. So many people and so many groups come here and they never notice that. And I tell them, if you look to the left side, you will see a stone. And on the stone, there is an inscription. This is the Ark of Covenant inscription. This is the only stone inscription that shows an image of the Ark of Covenant on wheels throughout all the Middle East ever found here. Of course, this is not the original one, but it's the replica. Why it's so important? Because it is the only inscription that shows the Ark on wheels. And this stone is taken away from the synagogue the later white limestone synagogue and you see the stone structure is white limestone and this is a proof that Jews were here the Ark of Covenant belonged to Jews belonged to synagogues also look to the right side of the stone you're gonna see a pillar a Corinthian style pillar shape and look at the capital of this pillar as a center you will notice a menorah a Jewish emblem you know what is the menorah? The menorah is the oldest symbol of the Jewish face. A menorah with seven branches also used to be in the temple. It has been said that the menorah is a symbol of the nations of Israel and its mission to be light unto the nations, taken from Isaiah 42 and 6. And remember when you entered through the airport, Ben Gurion, they gave you your visa and stamped. And it's a slip of a paper, it's your visa stamped on it. It's the menorah. So it's taken from Isaiah 42, 6. A light unto the nations, you see, fulfilled in Jesus. They don't know this information. Anyway, and the sages emphasize that the light is not a violent force. Israel is to accomplish them, its mission by setting an example and not by using force. This idea is highlighted in the vision of the prophet also, Zechariah who sees a menorah and God explains, not by might nor by power, but my spirit. Zechariah 4, 1 to 6. And what is important here? Look at the center of the menorah, at the lowest branch. Focus, use your imagination, and look at the center lowest branch of the menorah. You will see a hidden cross in the heart of the menorah. Jesus is the light. Menorah is the light. There is a hidden cross inside. And I can stretch on that and tell you the first reconciliation in history between Jews and Gentiles took place in Capernaum. This is a hidden emblem that is proving it. At one stage, there was a synagogue functioning here in the 5th, 6th century, and there was a church from the Byzantine period functioning. Jews worshipping in the synagogue, Christians worshipping in the church all together. And look more to the right, you will see another milestone. And in the center of the milestone, there is some inscription in Hebrew. I tell you, this is the internet of the first century. You write in the milestone the news of the city, the amount of tax you have to pay, and the distance between every milestone. 
I remember my stones mentioned in the Bible a lot. Go the extra mile. In the Roman Empire, originally, there are stone obelisks made from granite, marble, or white limestone. Whatever the local stone was available in that country. And at the center of Rome, till today, the golden milestone was erected to mark the presumed center of the empire. You know this saying, all roads leads to Rome? Because the Roman Empire were the first that invented the roads and connected all the empire with limestones. By the way, income number one to this part of the world was fishing in Capernaum. Income number two in the first century was olive oil press. You see in front of us also an olive, original first century olive oil. Olive oil is so much important. And income number three, chiseling milestones to the Romans. That was a big income. We find a lot of quarries in this part in Galilee. Chiseling milestones to the Romans. I can see that all the group is like getting hungry, including myself. And we've done like good job in Capernaum and they listened really for a long time and they were alert and hungry for and thirsty for information and I tell them let's go all to the bus and next we will go for lunch everyone will be going so fast because they're getting hungry and when everyone is in the bus we're gonna go for lunch I pray that you enjoyed this teaching and about the light and the darkness and about uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and the prophecy. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And also the valley of the doves, the Via Maris, that is not far from here, have seen so many battles in the area of Galilee. And this is what the Bible refers the valley of death, the shadow of death. And Jesus himself came to this land and he had his hometown in Capernaum and he brought the light to this region because there were so many wars here that they saw so much death, but he was the light to the Gentiles according to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 and according to Matthew 4 13 to 16. I hope by touring Capernaum you understand more about the light and the darkness and you understand more about Jesus the bread of life and how he functioned under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your patience and hopefully you enjoyed this teaching.